presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. This episode, titled Starting with Sustainability, we are joined by Vaughn Engler of Noresco, Pat Murphy of NV5, and Daniel Lessing, a client leader with BHDP. Vaughn, Pat, and Daniel all collaborated on the innovative One Toyota Project, one of Toyota's most sustainable projects in their portfolio. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP, and I'll let our guests introduce themselves further. Thanks, Brian. This is Vaughn Engler. I'm with Noresco, and we acted as the commissioning agent for this project. What commissioning is, is kind of a overarching role to provide coordination between the various players in, this, in the construction of the building. Thanks for that, Vaughn. Pat, if you wouldn't mind going next. Yep. My name is Pat Murphy with MV5 Engineering. We were the MET FP engineers on the project. My role was the principal in charge or senior project manager working hand-in-hand with the team and overseeing our MEP design. And last but not least, Daniel. Yeah, Daniel Lessing, BHDP Architecture. But the interesting thing for this particular project is, you know, prior to my career at BHDP, I worked for Toyota. So for this project, I was the project leader for the One Toyota construction project. That's great. The reason we've come together today is to talk specifically about sustainability and how it applies to this project. And I know one subset of that was something called the Toyota 2050 Challenge. Daniel, can you talk about that challenge a little? Sure. The Toyota 2050 Challenge is six individual challenges that Toyota is striving to meet by the year 2050. Um, overall, it's contributing to a better society through net positive impact. So the six challenges are new vehicles, zero CO2 emissions by the year 2050, trying to have all of our vehicles zero CO2. The second is zero CO2 emissions from our life cycle. So what that means is from the manufacturing of the vehicles, all the parts in the vehicle, reducing that to zero CO2 emissions. Third item is plant zero CO2 emissions. So at our actual manufacturing facilities and all of the office buildings, having them zero CO2. The fourth challenge is minimizing and optimizing all of our water usage. So trying to get as close as we can to zero water usage by the year 2050. Challenge five is establishing a recycling-based society and systems. So really increasing the amount of recycled content in both our cars and our buildings, as well as eliminating all landfill waste. Challenge six is establishing a future society that's in harmony with nature. So that gets into a lot of the well-building type aspects of connected to nature and connections to the local park areas and planting of trees and green space. So kind of fascinating that an automotive producer would take such an aggressive environmental uh, approach. What we did in this particular project is, you know, there's those six challenge points, not all six directly relate to new construction. So we uh, attempted to, you know, tie in to the challenges that 
the challenge points are directly related to construction projects. So our focus for the one Toyota construction projects was to minimize water, to strive for net zero energy buildings, to utilize health product data sheets and environmental product data sheets, to minimize the amount of landfill waste that we had during construction, as well as setting up proper recycling for all of our new facilities. And lastly, to uh, become wildlife habitat certified with all of our new construction projects. I didn't know that you could become wildlife habitat certified. It is a site certification similar to a lead certification or a well building or fit well certification. Um, certified wildlife habitat has a set criteria for a certain amount of green space, certain amount of trees, a certain amount of walking trails throughout the space, as well as establishing areas for wildlife to re-establish themselves at the construction oh, cool. sites. So things like bat boxes, butterfly way stations, walking cool. trails that, that folks, you know, tie into the, the, the society and the, the nature around them. That's fascinating. It's interesting, too. So there's a lot of things that you're trying to balance, um, a lot of lofty aspirational goals to try and achieve. So how do you wrap your arms around a project this complex? And can you speak to that collaborative design process and how it was implemented? For any project with a high level of complexity, a more integrated project delivery or IPD becomes more and more of a necessity. Because, you know, in the traditional design, bid, build world where you don't have the client with the designer, with the builder from day one, you're leaving a lot of people from sitting around the table and being involved in a collaborative conversation to achieve the project goals. When you have the ability to pull in, you know, everyone from the client side, and that's not just the individual project team right? Pulling in folks from facilities, operations, environmental, as well as from the design side, not just the architect, civil structural MEP, but any sort of sustainability consultants that are on the design side. And from the builder, you know, not just the construction manager, but also their partners, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, et cetera. And getting all those partners involved from day one, you get a much more robust plan you know, having a lot of additional opinions and feedbacks in the room, a lot more experience, allows for any plan to come through better. Really, for a sustainability project, it's, it's really important to get all of those voices involved from day one, understanding what those goals for the project are. For the Toyota projects, right, we had the kind of 2050 vision uh, challenge as our kind of North Pole that we're all driving towards and having everyone involved from day one and kind of pulling the rope, you know, so to speak in the same direction really allows for a project to be successful. It's Pat. I just wanted to add to that. We work for a lot of different clients that say that, that want to achieve something like that. But one of the things that was unique about this project, and I think Toyota did a great job on is bringing everybody to the table from the get-go, even in the interview process was really talking about, the 2050 goals and what would be expected of everybody. And we did work as a team on every single decision and it helped us on the design side 
to understand that even before we put together our basis of design to truly understand what Toyota was trying to achieve and understand the, the budgets for that so that we were designing properly and not designing all these pie in the sky dreams, if you will, and then have to go through a long VE process. So I think it really right. helped the overall success of the project. So yeah, you're saying that Toyota had an understanding from the beginning of what they were asking for and how to deliver it. Plus they understood exactly how much it was going to cost. And they told you from the beginning, here's how much we're going to put towards it. So you knew that they were invested in the project. But one of the goal was not just to be lead platinum, but net zero. So it's like, how do you build a lead platinum and net zero ready building from the ground up? Some information was sent ahead of time. You had a really great quote in here. An inefficient building with flashy projects strapped to the roof will not achieve the goal. This isn't just a decoration project. This is a holistic, uh, immersive design. Yeah. Correct. And I think the approach that Toyota, you know, outlined on just their sustainability goals and just the way they do business in general is that very, very strong building great products were put into the building, great systems were in the building, but it wasn't stuff that was flashy or unnecessary. It was really what did we need to become lead platinum and to have the building ready for that net zero capability as we go forward. So looking at the right systems that fit the system. One of the things that we touched on was the growth of the system, the growth of the building, what they could potentially do in the future. So other clients might've spent a little extra money to put something in they weren't using today. We looked at modular equipment, equipment that they could just grow over time, that it could handle the future growth, but you spend the money when you're going to be growing. You don't spend it up front, but you prepped for it. And it's all always in that design. Vaughn, I wanted to ask you though when we talk about bringing people to the table early how early were you involved in this project well actually you know earlier i mentioned that we were acting as a commissioning agent for this project um, but we were involved early even even earlier in the process as the energy modeler so we have an energy modeling team as well and so during that early design phase our team was basically trying to work with the design team and to look towards the actual future energy performance in that building with the energy model. And that was a kind of a collaborative process right there from the get-go. You know, as the design progressed, we were kind of there early phase of the design, um, doing design reviews and lending a third-person view of the actual design of the building with the goal of, of actually reaching this 2050 challenge. It's interesting because you're talking about energy modeling. So an energy model can be used to essentially predict it's a, you know, a rough prediction of the performance of that building. It's very powerful in, in its capabilities for predicting the performance of various changes to the building. So say you wanted to, you know, in this case, what if you do LED lighting? Well, how much is that going to save you? Or what if you use this type of window versus that type of window? What is that going to save you? That's what the energy model is a really powerful tool that can kind of help you predict those savings, essentially. Sure. Yeah, that's, thanks for that, Vaughn. Pat, from your perspective, like, how did working with these teams like this, were there any unique aspects to the dynamic? Because a lot of times you see people stand on their expertise. Was there more of a symbiotic relationship? Yeah, I would say, you know, similar to what we've been talking about, since everybody was around the table from the get-go, like Daniel mentioned, it wasn't just your key typical project. You might have your owner and the architect sitting at the table and then maybe your construction manager joins at some point. But we had all the key players within each organization involved from the get-go, 
just talking about the energy modeling piece, that was a large coordination and collaboration between our team and the Noresco team. In addition to that, obviously, Toyota was involved, BHCP was involved, looking at things like glass, looking at how the performance of the exterior of the building and how that would affect the systems. Again, just to touch on the energy modeling, that tool is so powerful, what it is today versus a few years ago and even five, six years ago, how we can spin a building around, look at the performance of that building, how that's going to affect the systems, really helps us um, tighten up the design and make sure everything is right-sized for that particular building. I remember when I was in architecture school, in one particular class, the teacher said something poignant. No matter what you do to be energy efficient or effective in your building, none of it matters if your envelope leaks like a colander. You know, (laughs) it's all about, you know, understanding the system that you're building before you put one piece of equipment inside of it. That's a really good point, Brian. I I think... You know, there's something called the process pyramid when you're evaluating a project from sustainability standpoints that kind of goes through your passive type elements of the building and then starting to get into your more passive and active elements of the building. And then lastly, once you've evaluated right your site conditions, the orientation of the building on the site, you've masked the building to be as efficient as possible before you start talking about how many solar panels am I going to put on the roof or if I'm going to have a geothermal system or not. The next thing after you've got this building figured out is it two stories, three stories, you know, 200,000 square feet or 300,000 square feet. It's what's the envelope, right? It's, it's, it's a more important decision than any sort of technology that I'm going to strap to this building later on. Because just to your right. point, right, if, if this building leaks like a sieve, the amount of geothermal and solar panels or what have you that I have to add to that building to overcome that poor envelope is just dramatically huge. On the construction side is actual money. If you're able to push your money into your envelope and push your money into making your building massing as efficient as possible, that's going to have huge dividends over buying another solar panel. Right. What were some of the strategies that you guys deployed to achieve some of these goals of being lead platinum and net zero ready? I guess I could kick that over to Pat from the yep. MEP standpoint in NV5. So on the, the net zero, Daniel touched on a few just there. You know, we had geothermal in the building that we looked at with other systems, but geothermal is the system that we ended up on working with a modular chiller. And the unique thing about that chiller that we have in the building is not only is it modular that it grows with Toyota, but it actually is set up that it's a dual heating and cooling system so that you could actually have one module working, cooling the perimeter of the building because of sun, and then another module working on the interior of the building. So it's extremely efficient. You don't have to buy extra equipment to do what this system does by itself. And it was serving an underfloor or is serving an underfloor system that helps in a couple ways too, is delivering that air at the ground level, if you will. It's passing up past you as the occupant versus coming from the ceiling through the light zone, through the heat zone, if you will, so the air is able to be delivered much warmer to the space and still keep everybody at the right comfort than a traditional setup would be. Um, So there's energy savings across the board on that. And the other 
goal that Toyota had too was as they move as a company, move people around, they wanted to have the flexibility. So being able to achieve that with that underfloor air distribution as you have modules with plug and play uh, setups that it's easy to move the diffusers around for the people and the modules around it as required. We also had PV for the building set up so that between the geothermal and the PV, as those systems grew, that would be your offset for your net zero. The photovoltaic system was pr- mm. primarily designed around the building roof. Um, we looked at other options as far as ground mount and potentially in, in the parking area. And one of the other cool things that we had looked at is Toyota obviously was one of the first ones with the electric cars, but we looked at how we could potentially work with Toyota and some of the recycled batteries to look at some energy storage for the building. So that was another unique piece of the of the project. And then the other thing we really haven't touched on much, and people really don't touch on it uh, when they look at buildings, since they think of energy as you know the HVAC and the lighting. But water is a major issue that a lot of clients like Toyota are looking at because they know how important and the amount of water that's utilized in some of these plants. So we did have a cistern where we were collecting rainwater and reusing that as a great water system. So that's another great way of saving water, saving water runoff and reusing that in a, a great water system to save on the water usage for the building. That's great, Pat. Thanks for that. It's one of those source of pride things. I'm a lead accredited professional, so I'm old school in my grandfathered credentials, but I get really excited about projects like these. But where it becomes really important is when you're taking a look at, all right, we've done these things. Is it doing what we thought it was going to do? Is it performing like we thought? And that's where the measuring of it becomes really important. That's where I wanted to kick it over to Vaughn a little bit. What things are being measured and then how are they performing? You know, this building is obviously fairly unique in all of the design aspects. And one of the other unique features is that it has the ability to measure its energy consumption. There are electrical meters at every electrical panel measuring the energy consumption of every circuit, basically. And so you can tell how much the lighting is using. You can tell how much the HVAC systems are using. You can also tell how much the PV is producing. And then you can see, of course, the entire building, how much is it using. That's a really valuable feature in a building like this, or in any building, really, because if you're not measuring how much energy you're using, then you really don't have any control over the building. It's really hard to control what you don't measure, right? And oftentimes, things like sensors go bad or actuators get stuck and, you know, things that are normal animals chew on the wires, whatever, normal things happen in the lifetime of a building that will cause things to go off the rails. And if you don't have a good meter to understand where things are going off the rails, then you just, you can't do anything about it. All this energy metering is really another powerful tool really for this building. When we were talking earlier, Daniel mentioned that this building is, not only is it performing as well as the initial model and design was predicted to, it is actually outperforming, or at least in the case of the supplier center, which is one of the buildings in this project. When you say it's exceeding expectations, you're measuring the energy output. Water consumption was another thing. Tell me more about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Well, actually, maybe, Daniel, you can speak to that. I think you had the exact numbers for that. The two primary metrics for energy and water, EUI, energy use intensity, and all that's really measuring is the KBTU per square foot. 
So basically how much energy are you using per square foot of building? And that's a very common metric for energy usage. The target for both these projects was 25 EUI, which is a extremely low target. Just for example, a normal inefficient building built a decade ago had an EUI over 100. And even the comparable projects that we benchmarked against would typically have an EUI around 40. So we were wow. really pushing pushing the envelope for the reduction in energy for these projects. And supplier centers actually meeting that goal and achieving it. The last I saw, the EUI was down around 17 or 18 for the supplier center, which is r- ridiculously low. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. similarly, as Pat mentioned, you know we have rainwater harvesting systems in place at both buildings. And when the supplier center was tracking its information and sharing that back with USGBC as part of its LEED Platinum certification, the goal of five gallons per day per person was being achieved as well and exceeding that by one or so gallons per day. So down about four gallons per day per person. Really awesome success in both those both those metrics. And really what that talks to is the amount of modeling and and having a very thorough, well-planned model and making sure that, you know, that model has as much information in it as possible so that we're not surprised <laughs> when we actually build a building. Yeah, that's interesting, Daniel, because you're talking about a, a lot bigger upfront investment. And one of the things we talked about before, which I think is interesting to bring up now, is something that usually kills a sustainability project is money, you know, budget. I mean, the real green in a green project are the dollar bills. And this investment on the front end might scare some folks off. Could you talk a little bit more about the budget and how that was perceived? So the short answer is both of these projects didn't increase their budgets more than 10%. A lot of folks would go, there's no way possible. But if you heard a common theme between, you know, myself and Pat and Vaughn, it's that there was a very intentional strategy of building the building for exactly the size that it needed to be, utilizing modular parts to make it all of the systems right size for what we needed for the building. And then continuing from picking out the site to how many stories the building was, to how it was orientated on the site, where's the daylighting coming in, where do we get good light but not bad heat. All those decisions that we made about the building, one of the major evaluation points was how does it impact our sustainability goal? And when you think sustainable from day one, the actual final impact to your budget is not that much. Where folks get scared off by sustainability projects is when they haven't thought about sustainability since day one, they build the building big, they build the building not very efficient as far as its massing is how it's laid out on the site, and then they ask someone to, well, how much solar panel do I need to put on the roof? And that's strapping that flashy project to the roof, but not achieving the goal. Which went back to your quote that you were beating into everyone's head, right? See how I did that? Yeah. (laughs) Bring it. <laughs> yeah, just to, I guess, help Daniel pat himself on the back. Here. This is Pat again. That, <laughs> that really was 
the big moment for us. I know we talked about what were the aha moments of the project to see how Toyota really talked about this. Didn't just talk about it, but it was part of every single meeting. How were we achieving these goals? How would we achieve these goals? So it did allow us from the get-go to really, really clearly identify the steps that we needed to take. And it was all done in the old days called on paper before the, the construction manager took that and brought it out to the field. So there really wasn't a lot of change orders. And there are a tremendous amount of great systems of great building, net zero or net zero ready, that I think the team overall did a phenomenal job and got a great price for that for that building. So help me understand then what makes a building net zero ready as opposed to being just net zero? So we built a building as efficiently as we could with the money that we had allocated. We did not make the investment in the amount of renewables required to get the building to full net zero. We spent our money on making sure that the building was as efficient as we possibly could make it so that in the future, when Toyota decides to invest in additional renewables for the site, that the building's ready to receive that and, and achieve the full net zero. And what do you mean when you say renewables? Photovoltaic, windmills are the two most popular. Renewable energy collection devices, I see. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So Vaughn, were there any big aha moments from this project that were either surprises or just delightful circumstances for you? <laughs> well, maybe not surprises, but, you know, I, I think maybe just like um, some exciting features of the project were to be involved in, in such a, a progressive design. You know, this was the modular chiller heater that Pat was talking about earlier. It's a really cool piece of equipment, you know, and to have that thing linked with a ground well fielded, you know, geothermal field and it's pretty advanced stuff. For me to be involved in that and to, to get to be there and to see this equipment in operation, and, you know, it was a really special moment, I, I guess I would say. And just to add on to that, you know, it wasn't easy either. With this being a pretty unique project and its lofty goals and pretty complex design, really. It wasn't easy getting all those systems integrated and up and running correctly. That was kind of part of our role as commission to be on site and assist that process. And, you know, once this equipment is installed, actually testing that equipment and ensuring that it's working the way that Pat's actually designed it. Um, oftentimes what happens is that step gets missed and the systems are there, but they're not doing the right things. That was a big challenge on this project and would be on any project of this type. Not only when you have the sophisticated systems, getting everything working together, getting the controls all dialed in so that they're working properly. That's usually one of the major challenges when you open up a building like this. But more impressive is, again, that the building is running more efficient and doing better than what we even estimated means that the people who are running the building that we've left that building behind for are really running it to its capabilities and pushing it where sometimes we'll walk away from a project and hand it over and the facilities team may not be used to running something like that where at the end of the day they're not achieving the energy savings they should be or they could be so this kind of is a you know it's a testament to the Toyota team not just at the start but the Toyota team that took it over at the end and is maintaining the building. 
you know, the stewards of the building are operating it to its fullest capacity. And then some sounds like what I heard, too, the way you were describing it, Vaughn and Pat, is it's like when you're to use an automotive parlance, when you're designing a race car and you think it's going to perform a certain way and you put the the engine and the, the performance package together, you have to do a little test and tune. So it's like once it's installed, you have to make sure everything's operating the way you thought and then dial it up or down based on, you know, creating a better efficiency, right? Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, I wanted to give you a chance to answer that question too. Did you have any big aha moments during this project? One of my favorite stories is during the design for the supplier center, one of the first lead version four platinum buildings in the world, I think it was number five. We were breaking a lot of new ground. And one of the things that we were really struggling with was the whole building life cycle assessment. And basically what that does is you put in all the different materials in your building and you get a rating or score of how much global warming potential, how much like entrained CO2 is in the construction of that building. So, and then the goal, right, is to make a reduction of those numbers to make a building that use less carbon to build. And, you know, there really wasn't a a clear way to achieve that credit when we started off on this project because no one had tried. (laughs) We decided to proceed on figuring out how we could remove cement from our concrete, both in our foundations and our slab on grade and slab on deck. The real interesting thing in that conversation is we had the construction manager and their concrete supplier in the meeting. Right. So we go back to the original, you know, we had everyone at the table from the very beginning, right? If this had just been a design team sitting around and talking through these problems, we wouldn't have had that construction manager providing input throughout. So the construction manager here is we're going to take all the concrete out of the project or take all the cement out of the project. And they get really, really worried that the building's never going to harden up, right? That they're never (laughs) going to have anything cure. We were doing cores and samples and doing core breaks of different concrete mixes that met the whole building life cycle assessment goals. And then you're playing with how much fly ash, how much cement, you know, how much aggregate to get to something that the contractor could build, but still meet the LCA. So we end up achieving the LCA credits and our, our concrete floors eventually did harden up. So it was, it was a win for everyone, but it would, have been, it would have been impossible to try to navigate and figure out what that concrete mix should be, right? If we didn't have all the players at the table or worse, right? We would have said, oh yeah, we can get this credit and then not have a conversation with the contractor until, you know, they're getting ready to build the job versus when the project's in design. But what about removing cement from the concrete mixture gains you sustainability points? The amount of manufacturing required to make cement is a very carbon burning process. The process to make cement really, really burns a lot of CO2. So if we're able to pull cement out of the job and use recycled fly ash instead, that carbon reduction in our building was massive. So that's how we were able to achieve that credit. That's fascinating, especially knowing where fly ash comes from, but the fact that it's being recycled and is no longer a waste product. Exactly. That's amazing. Anything else that you feel like we should share before we go? The 
main way for sustainability projects to be uh, successful is, you know, that commitment from day one from the owner, the design team, pulling in, you know, all the other affected groups from the contractor to the maintenance staff. And, you know, really having everyone committed from the very beginning is how you're able to achieve these projects. Picking and choosing what portions of sustainability you want to go after or not being fully committed, one, doesn't really get all the goals that you're looking for, and two, is going to drive up the price. It's really nice to see that this project, you know, we're all talking now, you know, a couple years removed from wrapping it up, but there was a lot of slamming of fists on tables and back and forth. And right, it's not an easy process for a project like this, but you know, <laughs> everyone was there in the room and no one got their feelings too hurt. And we, you know, we were able to hit the success that we were looking for. That's fantastic. I'd have one more question before we go. If there's uh, someone out there and they're thinking about sustainability but unlike Toyota, they don't have the goals of the project mapped out yet. Where would you recommend they start to get that vision to even start the project in the first place? That's a good question. So now that I'm on the BHDP side, something that we do at the beginning of every project is to take a look at what the client that we're working with has published from sustainability goals. You know, almost Every company now has a published yearly sustainability report or corporate responsibility report. And that document is a treasure trove of information to see, you know, what your executives have said their mission and vision is as it relates to sustainability. And when you're able to tailor the project to be in alignment with what your CEO or CFO has published publicly, that's what it allows that project to have that connection and have the ability for it to be successful. Thanks for that. Well, Pat, Vaughn, Daniel, thank you all for being a part of this. I hope people are as excited to hear it as I was to talk about it. This is the kind of project I wish I was involved in more of. So thank you all for your time. Yeah, thank thanks, you. Brian. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, for this episode, starting with sustainability, with our guests Vaughn Engler of Noresco, Pat Murphy of NV5, and Daniel Lessing of BHDP. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.